Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. This episode is sponsored by Internment by Samira Ahmed. Set in a horrifying near-future United States, 17-year-old Layla Amin and her parents are forced into an internment camp for Muslim-American citizens. With the help of newly made friends also trapped within the camp, her boyfriend on the outside, and an unexpected alliance, Layla begins a journey to fight for freedom, leading a revolution against the internment camp's director and his guards. Heart-racing and emotional internment challenges readers to fight complicit silence that exists in our society today. Again, that is Internment by Samira Ahmed. It's out now. You can find it wherever books are sold or click the link in the show notes. Internment by Samira Ahmed. Thanks to them for sponsoring. This is the Book Riot Podcast, a weekly news and talk show about what's new, cool, and worth talking about in the world of books and reading. This is episode 305. We're recording on Thursday, March 28th. I'm Rebecca Shinsky. I'm here with Jen Northington this week while Jeff is out on vacation, and we are coming to you from bookriot.com. Hello, Jen. Hello. How's it going? It's good. Uh, Thank you for joining me this week while Jeff is out hugging trees or looking at trees (laughs) or... (laughs) Gazing from a distance at trees. <laughs> Safe distance. <laughs> we like as the resident tree huggers, I do feel like we need to work on him and Amanda. <laughs> yeah. You would think that after working with me for like eight years, Jeff would have come around to the tree hugging, but no. there's just always room for more, I guess. <laughs> um, yeah, his trip is involving some national parks and we had a fun discussion about um like the appropriate level of nature. <laughs> So anyway, glad that you're here. Um, Happy to be here. Yeah. We have some fun news from Book Riot produced podcast land if you want to kick us off with that. Yes, I do. I'm so excited for this. We have a new podcast. It's called Kidlit These Days, and it is about all things kids literature. So picture books, board books, middle grade, all that good stuff. And it's hosted by our very own contributor, Karina Yan Glazer, who is also now a best-selling New York Times best-selling children's author. Very excited mm-hmm. for her. And she is in cahoots on this with children's librarian and host of the children's book podcast, Matthew Winner. And their first episode is really great, y'all. You should give it a listen. Uh, It talks specifically about immigration and issues of racism in schools. And they talk to all of these great Hispanic and Latinx authors. And it is very much worth a listen. So if that's in your wheelhouse, definitely check it out. It is available on Apple Podcasts and Google Play and all of those other podcatchers. So again, that's Kidlit these days. Super excited to have that in in our show fold now. Show fold. <laughs> Is that That's a just a thing I said. No, okay. it's just a thing I said. They're just words that came out of my mouth. <laughs> I was like, "Is that a wow? Is that a thing that I don't know about?" <laughs> Well, that bodes well for the next hour. (laughs) (laughs) Hello. Welcome to the show fold. (laughs) Jeff will come back next week and I'll be like, so, yes, we have a new business model. (laughs) It's called the show fold. (laughs) Let me tell you about it. Stay tuned. (laughs) Um, You know what I would like to hear about, though, is our first sponsor this week. 
Yes, I can do that. Our first sponsor this week is The Fifth Doctrine, which is the third book in New York Times bestselling author Karen Robard's The Guardian series. This is a thriller, and it is about a master manipulator named Bianca St. Ives, who has been avoiding authorities pretty successfully, but they have finally tracked her down and caught her, and it is not the capture she expected. So instead of bringing her in, they've got an offer on the table, and it's a one-shot deal that would allow Bianca to walk away scot-free as if they've never found her, and all she has to do is run one last mission, but it's the kind she might never return from. But if she wants to go back to her normal life in Savannah, it's not like she has a choice. So this is for fans of James Bond and Jason Bourne, especially those who would love a strong lead female character. Uh, Robards has been a regular on the bestseller list and this series in particular, and it's a high-stakes caper novel, been described as adrenaline-rich, delightful, uh, an intoxicating combo of Stephanie Plum and James Bond. Super fun, super enjoyable. Sounds like a really good book heading into summer also. Mm -hmm. So if that is in your wheelhouse, you want to give it a look. It's The Fifth Doctrine, the third book in New York Times bestselling author Karen Robards' The Guardian series. Stephanie Plum and James Bond, like that is a compelling pitch. I, I was going to say that that is <laughs> like, that's a very good Venn diagram right there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I really approve. <laughs> All right. Well, into the news this week, we'll start with some follow up from the land of Jay Asher's lawsuit against St against SCBWI, which is the Society of Children's Book Writers and Illustrators. By way of a quick recap, he was accused by several women of sexual harassment last year uh, and then asked, I believe, not to speak at SCBWI's conference or to recuse himself from attending or something going on there related to um, those accusations that he believes were damaging to his reputation. So he filed a suit in January in Los Angeles County Superior Court, alleging that SCBWI and the director Lynn Oliver made false and defamatory statements that unfairly damaged his reputation and his career. He's seeking monetary damages for those things, um, which we discussed when it happened in January. So we have found out this week that SCBWI's attorneys are seeking to have the suit thrown out based on California's anti-slap laws, um, which functionally make it more difficult for a public figure to allege defamation uh, than for a private figure to do so. Um, this came up, I think it was mentioned as a possibility in one of the previous stories about this. Jay Asher saying he doesn't think that he's a public figure. It looks like SCBWI's attorneys believe that they can make the case that he is a public figure. And so his uh, defamation suit should be held to those standards that uh, that are a little tougher there. Um, Asher, they claim, can't show that any of the defendant's statements were extreme or outrageous or intended to inflict emotional distress. And so they believe he is unlikely to prevail. Um, He continues to allege that he provided information that he believes would have exonerated him, but that Lynn Oliver at SCBWI did not conduct that investigation or do with the information what he believes that she should have. So we will see if this goes to court or not. Um, The appearance, it it says here, in the filing, attorneys for Oliver and SCBWI informed the court that they plan to make their motion to dismiss in an appearance that's scheduled for April 23rd. Um, So they will officially make this request next month, and then I guess we will find out if this is going to go to court or not so yep stay in tuned stay tuned that is the update you know i just have to i understand why jay asher is upset at least according to the words that he has said about 
his perspective on this, but I feel like the the guys on the receiving end of Me Too allegations who file these defamation suits don't ever end up you don't come out of that smelling better than you smelled going into it. That's one way to put it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I don't, I mean, I don't even know what to say about that. It's like you're, it, the whole thing is just so complicated and messy. And, but he is, I, I would say, you know, just from straight up legal standpoint, and I am not a lawyer or a legal scholar, but it seems pretty clear that he's a public figure. So, Mm -hmm. you know, if that's the law, then that's the law. Yeah. Yeah. I, I'm most fascinated by like, how do you think you're not a public figure? Right. Right. Here. Like it's a best-selling book, mm-hmm. also a Netflix series. Like yeah. he might not be a household name that people are talking about around the dinner table, but I'm I think in sure. some circles he is. So yeah. yeah I, yeah, that, that is the part. his work is. Yeah. It'll mm-hmm. be interesting to see what the court decides about his public figureness yes. or not. Right. Uh, um, while we're in author shenanigans corner, mm. some follow up, um, maybe not even follow up. It's like additional nuance, I guess, to the the story about Dan Mallory, who also writes as AJ Finn, the author of The Woman in the Window, and of course this subject of a very long, revealing, complicated, messy, disturbing uh, New Yorker investigation that came out a month or so ago about sort of decades-long deceptions, lies that he told ranging from having degrees that he didn't have. He once claimed to be British when he is not British. He claimed to be in cancer treatment for a very long time when there's no evidence that he was um, impersonated his brother, sending emails to people, like a bunch of a bunch of things. Um, it's like a 10,000-word New Yorker piece that we can't possibly recap again here. Uh, But just a really eye-opening story about a person who has been given a lot of advantages in the world of of publishing and a lot of success. And the latest is that this person who once faked being British has been nominated this week for a British Book Award. (laughs) The woman in the window was shortlisted for the crime and thriller category of the British Book Award, which is also known as the Nibbies. Yeah, that was a surprise to me, too. <laughs> I'm going to need the story. Yeah, I don't know what that means. On uh, on how that happened. Apparently, you don't need to be British to be nominated for the British Book Award. Like, Michelle Obama is also one of the nominees this year. So they're just nominating good books, I guess. I'm not familiar enough with the criteria of the British Book Awards to get into like whether or not. But I I have a problem yeah. with this, Jen. Yeah. I know. I I am the face palm emoji right now mm-hmm. on this regard. Mm-hmm. And and I, I also want to mention, you know, there's been some continuing discourse around this story in particular that Mallory has uh said that he has certain mental health diagnoses and um there's been some talk about, you know, whether or not it's fair to call him out for his behavior in light of that. And I think it's important to note that like I am, you know, have, I have an anxiety diagnosis and I have many friends who have other diagnoses and that may be an explanation for behavior, but it's, it's certainly not an excuse, especially when, you know, the person in question has been called out on these things and has shown no remorse or attempts to improve their behavior. and I think it's also worth noting that, you know, failing up, which is what Mallory appears to be mm-hmm. doing, uh, is very specifically a 
white male phenomenon. You don't really see other people getting the kinds of chances and accolades despite their behavior that, you know, somebody like Mallory is experiencing. And that is very frustrating to watch. Yeah, that there are like, he's admitted to some of this stuff. He's acknowledged it. Like when that New Yorker piece came out and there was like the level of investigation that was involved in that piece would have made it difficult Mm -hmm. to continue denying that he had done any of these things. But he doesn't seem sorry. Mm -hmm. Like he seems to be holding up the mental health diagnosis as like a full justification, which is not fair to all of the people in the world who have mental health diagnoses and are working really hard to you know, not use that as justification for behavior that shouldn't exist. Um, or like, it just, it, this is not like the story that we want right. to tell about people who have mental health concerns. And it's, that, like, it's it, not the story that most people right. are telling. Yeah. Yeah. It's very like, that's a very harmful narrative to contribute to. He does not seem sorry. And like Harper Collins said like, well, we don't comment on our author's private lives or on our employees' private lives. Like he's been allowed to keep this high-level job. He still has this big book deal. There are giant posters mm-hmm. for the woman in the window in the airport bookstores that I've been seeing recently. Like failing up, I think, is the perfect terminology there that you have to take that step back of like if this big investigative piece were about like a black woman author, she would not be able to to excuse all of this misbehavior with and like misdeeds and like very calculated stuff mm-hmm. with like, well, it's a I I have a mental health problem. Yeah. And that is important. Like, why are we not like there are many other good books. Yeah. Like not to mention that like what I have heard about the woman in the window is that it's not like necessarily book award winner worthy. Um, but like there's, why do we need to give attention? Like, let us not give further attention and contribute to the, the failing up of somebody who's behaving this way. Like it's, this is not, it's not okay. Like the things that he did are not okay, no matter what the reason for them is and allowing him to continue having access to these posi- like to the position of privilege that he has to the job, to the book deal, to getting nominated for book awards is I think really harmful. Yeah. It's, it is ungreat. Ungreat. Is this where I'm going to land on that? <laughs> Dan Mallory is not invited into the show fold. Nope. <laughs> Correct. Correct. (laughs) All right. Let's see. Is it time for our next sponsor? (laughs) I don't want to talk about Dan Mallory anymore. It can be. Can it be? Let's let's do that. (laughs) Our next sponsor is The Things We Cannot Say by Kelly Rimmer, uh, published by Graydon House Books. And this is a historical and contemporary fiction. In 1942, uh, Europe was in the grips of World War II, and just beyond the tense of the reference, rush- let's try that again. Just beyond the tents of the Russian refugee camp she calls home, a young woman speaks her wedding vows, and it is a decision that will alter her destiny, and it's a lie that will remain buried until the next century. Slipping between Nazi-occupied Poland and the frenetic pace of modern life. Kelly Rimmer creates an emotional and finely wrought narrative that weaves together two women's stories into a tapestry of perseverance, loyalty, love, and honor. So the things we cannot say is an unshakable reminder of the devastation when the truth is silenced and how it can take a lifetime to find our voice before we learn to trust it. So really light and fun. No, I'm kidding. I, I do lo- I do love a good historical novel and a family drama. Um, 
And I know lots of folks out there do as well. Uh, this is sort of for those of you who are interested in novels that evoke the family dramas of Jodi Pico or the World War II stories of Pam Jenoff. And Kelly Rimmer is the worldwide and USA Today bestselling author of five novels, including Before I Let You Go, Me Without You, and The Secret Daughter. And she lives in rural Australia. How interesting. Ooh. That's very interesting. Uh, the, new, the novel is getting rave reviews, including one from booklist that said fans of Kristen Hanna's The Nightingale and Pam Janoff's The Orphan's Tale will enjoy this absorbing emotional tale of love, heartbreak, and resilience. That sounds very heartwarming. Mm -hmm. So again, that is The Things We Cannot Say by Kelly Rimmer, published by Graydon House Books. Do you think they hug trees in Australia? I would I would think not because nature in Australia is very aggressive and I would be afraid to hug an Australian tree. I'm not going to lie. It is. I think things are kind of prickly. Yeah, there. exactly. It's like hugging a tree in Arizona. You wouldn't do that. It's a bad idea. I'm having a tree is a exactly cactus. having lived in Arizona. I can definitely say I would not recommend that. You should be selective with your tree hugging is what I'm saying. <laughs> Selective tree hugging is 100% the show title. <laughs> oh, boy. Well, sadly, Jen, our next story is bad news. Oh. But then we have some okay, good news. Okay. So we're going we're gonna to take the good and we're going to take the bad. We're going to take them both and there we'll have the facts of life. <laughs> wow. I'm going to have that stuck in my head for the next week, thanks to you. You know, I had Jewel stuck in my head all week last week, so this is kind of an update. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> all right. So in bummer news from Florida, and it's, you know, nothing bad on Florida this week. This is just happens to be bummer news out of Florida. It could have been many other places, and we've heard the same bummer news from other places. A Florida state representative named Mark Hill has filed HB 855, which is a bill. Um, he filed it in February. That would make the censorship and banning of books in schools easier and would also put the careers and lives of those who make those books readily available for children in jeopardy. Hill says that the bill is necessary in order to, quote, remove pornography out of our public schools. It would prohibit school employees, including teachers and librarians, from providing material that would be, quote, harmful to students or that would depict sex. It also requires that students notify parents and seek their written permission before they can teach sex education. Um, according to the bill, harmful to minors is defined as any reproduction, imitation, characterization, description, exhibition, presentation, or representation of whatever kind or form depicting nudity, sexual conduct, or sexual excitement when it predominantly appeals to a prurient, shameful, or morbid interest is patently offensive with respect to what is suitable material material or conduct for minors and depicts an image or text that meets the definition of deviant sexual intercourse. Uh, and it goes on to, you know, much more thoroughly define what they believe is happening here. But like, this is sufficiently vague language for a reason. It's intentionally vague language, um, harmful to minors, predominantly appealing to prurient, shameful, or morbid interest. Um, what is suitable material or conduct for minors? Actually, what constitutes deviant sexual intercourse? And of course, um, those definitions are in the eye of the beholder, which is the point um, for Mark Hill and for the group that are related to uh, well, there was a mention somewhere in some other piece that I read. There's a group that Mark Hill is affiliated with. Um, 
Oh, no, it's in this piece. It's the Florida yes, Citizens yes. Alliance. Kelly Jensen did a wonderful piece on Book Riot that we're referring to here. And so the Florida Citizens Alliance functionally would like to decide what is appropriate for all teenagers to read um, and then be in charge of making sure that anything they decide is not appropriate would not be in books. And here is the kicker, Jen. Any person violating any provision of this bill, if it becomes a law, would be accused of committing a third degree felony. Yeah, this is this is where it gets really just dangerous. And I just think unacceptable because as this piece point, points out, any book that discusses, for example, sexual assault, like not in a, but mm-hmm. not in a positive way, in any way, um, including in a way that addresses trauma and the issues would be deemed pornographic by these standards. Any book that has, you know, non-heteronormative sex or sexuality mm-hmm. probably also falls under that. And these are books that have been proven time and time again, to be so important to teenagers. I mean, I think about Laurie Hall Sanderson's Speak, Mm -hmm. for example. That book has, you know, there are tons, continues to be censored uh, or be challenged. And yet, like, I I freelance for her and I get her fan mail. You know, I I, I monitor that inbox and I cannot tell Mm -hmm. you how many people this has been like a healing narrative for them. So... We know these books are important for teenagers and to block them and to subject librarians and educators who recommend them to third degree felony charges is just so, so, so Like you're awkward. going to jail because you let a teenager read forever oh, by Judy yeah. Bloom. Right. I just can't even. Or The Bluest Eye by Toni Morrison. Right. Like what? Yeah. The Florida Citizens Alliance um, has been known also to speak up against climate change. Um, They are charging that science textbooks that have been used in the classrooms promote climate change, or I guess acknowledge the existence of it. Um, And they've had a history of challenging a variety of texts throughout various counties in Florida that they believe to be hindering a Christian agenda. Um, The group has also called explicitly for religious education in the classroom. Uh, So that's who you're dealing with, with the Florida Citizens Alliance. But they also like, this is also a terrifying piece of this bill, um, is that it would not just be parents who could be empowered to step up and request that a book be recalled. Like usually the conversations that we see happening around people wanting to remove a book from a certain school or like a parent doesn't like that this book is on their kid's reading list or that this book is in their child's library and they don't think it should be happening in their child's school and they're working to take it out. But this bill would allow any citizen to step forward and deem a book unacceptable. And then put the educators and the librarians at risk and also have them running in the circles of trying to like deal with the system and deal with the charges or deal with proving that the book should be able to stay or or whatever. So like, like I don't have kids in school, but if I lived in this Florida county, I could just decide that I didn't think any kids should have access to Forever by Judy Bloom, and I could make a whole thing about it and influence the educational opportunities and the literary material that's available to children who are not mine. Yeah. Not, not great. It's mm-mm. So if you live in Florida and you are concerned about this, the bill is HB 855, and it was brought by Representative Mark Hill. You know what to do. Um, Mark Hill, may your efforts fail. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. <sighs> well, let's talk about a good news. 
Take us into good news, Let's do some good news. Also by Kelly, thank you for bringing us all of these excellent uh, political reporting. Um, Michigan has seen, like many states, a lot of funding for public schools declined drastically over the last decade with a corresponding decline in literacy among students. And they have lost nearly 20% of the full-time equivalent school librarians who are also known as media specialists. So there's a series of bills in the Michigan House now to ensure that librarians are legally required fixtures in schools throughout the state. Mm-hmm. So this this statistic was really shocking to me. Only 8% of Michigan schools have a full-time certified wow. media specialist. 8% Person, oh, they just, you know, mm-hmm. I growing up, like I relied on our school librarians, and it makes me so sad to think that, that, first of all, there are not jobs for those librarians in Michigan, and second of all, that students don't have access to somebody who can help them navigate, you know, books, literally books. Like, mm-hmm. you know, it, like yeah, it's really hard to find, as we all know, it's really hard to find things that you want to read. And without somebody whose literal job it is to do that, it just makes it that much more difficult. Um, so House Bill 4392, which is one of the bills, would ensure that schools with uh, certain percentages of students had certain in, you know, mandatory positions for media specialists. Um, there's another bill, House 4393, would require every school to have a library, as well as print and electronic resources and a schedule that would allow for students and staff to access it. And then uh, Bill 4394 lands somewhere between the two bills um, and would require each school to have somebody designated to watch over the library in the absence of a certified media specialist. So there's a mm-hmm bunch more information about all of these things. It's really interesting. Uh, And it's actually worth, I think, even if you're not in Michigan, looking into what your own state has going on in terms of literacy and media specialists, because this is not a problem unique to Michigan. And it's definitely something that's worth paying attention to. Yeah, Kelly notes here that Michigan ranks 47th in student to media specialist ratio. So that 8% is, I think, notably small. Um, but I think any, if you're listening to this kind of podcast, you probably have a story like both of us do here about like the experience with a librarian that was really pivotal in your young reading life or the book that you encountered thanks to a librarian that shifted or that shifted something for you or like uh, to bring in the previous example, Jen, like there are librarians out there putting mm-hmm. Lori Hulse Anderson's books into the hands of kids who really need to read those books and to have a lens on the horrible experiences that they've had, but also on healing from those experiences. And that's just one of yeah. the things that librarians are doing and acknowledging that librarians are essential um, and should be essential. Uh, in technical terms, and then taking steps to make that happen for students is so, so important. So my hat is off to uh, the folks who are working. May your efforts succeed, (laughs) uh, lawmakers, uh, working for these. And yeah, I I have no idea what's happening in Virginia schools because I don't have kids in them, but I do care that the kids coming out of Virginia schools have had access to libraries and to the books that they need, and I should learn some more things here. So say we all. I should learn some things, too. I have not looked to see. There's a ton of stuff going on with Philadelphia schools, actually, some of which I'm aware of and some of which I'm not. So always worth educating yourself on your local situation. Yes. Let us learn something. Indeed. (laughs) All right. Back to just kind of the realm of 
random, interesting, fun things and fun, I think, especially if you're a fan of J.R. or Tolkien or The Lord of the Rings, researchers at Marquette University, which has an extensive collection of Tolkien's notes and manuscripts and all sorts of stuff, they want to hear from fans for an oral history project that they're hoping will have up to 6,000 recordings of it. Um, And they've chosen the number 6,000 because for those of you who are fans, 6,000 is the number of writers of the Rohirrim. It's called the Tolkien Fandom Oral History Project. There wasn't much of a deal made um, when it launched recently, um, but now they're ramping up so that they can include fans who can't come to Milwaukee. So if you're thinking like, yes, I absolutely want to tell the story about why I love the Lord of the Rings or J.R.R. Tolkien, um, you can do that. Uh, and we'll have this link in the show notes where you can find out how to contribute your own story of fandom. Um, I think more interesting than the particulars of it being around Tolkien and The Hobbit is like this recognition that we're starting to see of people in academia acknowledging what sort of like pop culture fandom looks like and that it's a significant thing worthy of study. Ooh, I like that take on it. I had not thought about it. I was just sitting over here being really entertained about how specific they've been like 6,000 because <laughs> the Rohirrim and they launched it on March 25th because that's the day in Tolkien's timeline when, when The Ring was just destroyed and you know all of these like call outs to fandom but you're so right and uh and you know I just came back from the Granger Leadership Academy, which is a mm. uh, leadership academy put on by the Harry Potter Alliance organized around Harry Potter fandom. So, you know, using the power of story to help a- people find access to activism. And it is so interesting to see that overlap of fandom with real world situations and Mm. stories. And it's so powerful when it happens. And I do think you're exactly right that it's so interesting to see academic institutions taking a look at this and making archives around it. I think that there will be very interesting, like analyzing that data would be so interesting. Like if you have 6,000 stories, like what are the commonalities? What are the different? Differences, you know, and what mm-hmm. who who shows up to talk about it? Yeah, I should call them and tell them the story of my dad reading me The Hobbit yes. as a bedtime story when yes, I was eight. Absolutely, <laughs> and like I think just the story of how Marquette ended up with these materials yeah. is interesting because there's often it's like so. It's, it's a convoluted and complicated process for a library or an archive of any kind to like get an author's materials. Um, and Marquette is a Jesuit college. So like that's also kind of makes things interesting, but like they built a new library and back in like the mid fifties, they hired a new librarian. Um, he contacted Catholic writers and Tolkien was one of them. And, uh, through an agent basically just asked if he was willing to sell his papers and Tolkien said yes in 1957. And that is how Marquette ended up with 11,000 pages of work that basically show the creation of The Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit, as well as some of the lesser known books and Tolkien's whole process. Yeah, it's really neat. Um, Really, yeah, really cool. Uh, So fascinating stuff. If you have a Tolkien story to tell, get yourself to this link and figure out how to be part of this oral history project. Like, I would just love to see it happen for so many other, like, what if somebody, please tell me that there's like a group of academics somewhere collecting stories about like Ursula K. Le Guin. Or Octavia Butler. There's a great library in California that has a bunch of her papers. It would be really interesting to do a project around that. And the internet makes it so easy to get this information now from people 
Like you don't have, they don't have to be able to go to Milwaukee or to California. Like you can give them online ways and then you could have stories from people all mm-hmm. over the world. Um, oh, I love I it love too. It. Yeah. This, this is, this was, I was like, did she put this on here just for me? <laughs> but I know you were also a Tolkien <laughs> fan from the way back. <laughs> You know it was mostly for you, Jen. Our shared fandom. It's good. It's good. Nature and Tolkien. <laughs> if someone wants me to call you and tell you my um, the story of my attachment to Toni Morrison, I yes. would be happy to do that. Like, I think you and I have established it offline that like the fandoms I would be ready to come to like fisticuffs over are basically, it's like Toni Morrison yeah. and Robinson, and that's it. <laughs> It's a good short list. It's a good short list. Literary. <laughs> yes. <laughs> let's do, uh, let's see, we have a sort of interesting pair of author to do our first spot, our next sponsor before oh, we get into that. Our, oh, yes, we probably should. Uh, our next sponsor this week is Bombus. All right. Bombus makes amazing socks. And that is saying something because how often do you actually think about your socks? Uh, if you are like me, it's probably not much. But, or at least it wasn't much until I got a bunch of Bombas socks. And now I think about how happy my feet are <laughs> all the time. Um, which, like, this is a true story. Bombas sent us a bunch of socks when they were first sponsoring the show. And I was like, why do I care about socks? Well, let me tell you. These are the most comfortable socks in the history of feet. They're super soft. They're made from natural cotton. Every pair comes with arch support. The toe is seamless, which like I'm kind of particular about that. And I find it to be much more comfortable when there's not a seam across the toe of socks. The footbed is really cushioned. It's comfy, but it's not too thick. And there's this like nice band of like honeycomb design fabric around the center of the foot. Maybe that's the same thing as the arch support they're talking about that like hugs the middle of your foot and just makes it feel very cozy. I love these socks. They come in... Tons of colorful patterns, a bunch of different styles. I have Bombas hiking socks. I have little no-show socks that I wear in my chucks and like little sneakers. I have ankle socks that I wear with running shoes. They make like sort of business style dress socks. So like from the gym to the office to out while you're hugging trees, Bombas has a sock that you can put on your feet. These are the socks that feet daydream about. And best of all, for every Bombas purchase that you make, Bombas donates a pair of socks to someone in need. Um, Socks are among the most frequently requested items by homeless shelters and other organizations that provide resources to people in need. And Bombas is helping to support that. Um, So you like you can have happy feet and also support a company with a philanthropic mission. If you want to check out Bombas, you can do it for 20% off your first purchase by going to bombas.com slash bookriot. That is B-O-M-B-A-S dot com slash bookriot for 20% off bombas.com slash bookriot. Thanks to them for sponsoring. I am always delighted to talk about good socks. I am a woman in my late 30s. <laughs> Own it, girl. I also, I'm not going to lie, I hiked around Germany and Ireland in Bombas socks last fall and I was not sad about it. Yeah, they're good socks. Mm-hmm, good socks mm-hmm. matter. Yes. They really do. All right. Well, let's talk about our old Indeed. friend Harper Lee. <laughs> Tell me about Harper Lee, Rebecca. <laughs> you know, usually when there's a Harper Lee item on the podcast agenda, I'm like, do we really have to keep talking about Harper Lee? But this is kind of delightful. In a letter that Harper Lee wrote in what year did she write? 1993. This letter? A letter 
Yes, a letter that she wrote in 1993, which has recently been sold at auction for 20,000 pounds. This piece is from The Guardian. Harper Lee made it very clear that she did not want her hometown of Monroeville, Alabama to become a tourist attraction. Um, She said, quote, what was once a tiny town of considerable character is now six times its size and populated by appalling (laughs) people. (laughs) she describes seeing a billboard uh, around town that showed the courthouse and an image of a mockingbird and that she nearly had a fit that it was an indescribable taste and a fraud on the public Um, like she just very clearly did not want this Um, a couple decades after that in 2013 she brought a lawsuit against Monroeville's town museum which has like 30,000 visitors a year accusing it of exploiting her fame without compensating her for it. And I believe it was last year, sometime in the last couple of years, we saw a story um, since her death about like formal plans between Monroeville and the Harper Lee estate to actually like make a tourist attraction out of Monroeville with like walking tours and build like houses that were built as reproductions of the houses described in the book. Um, The town courthouse is already the courthouse that inspired the courthouse scenes in To Kill a Mockingbird. And there would be like reenactments of scenes around town. Like you could walk around the imaginary neighborhood from To Kill a Mockingbird and like watch probably like actors playing Scout and Jem like out in the front yard or, you know, hiding things in the tree, whatever it is. Now I'm like revealing that it's been 25 years since I read To Kill a Mockingbird. Um, but she didn't want this. Like, and I, I remember when we got the announcement that they were going to be working on this, like turning Monroeville into a tourist attraction, feeling like, wow, that really, I don't think that jives with what my impression of Harper Lee's feelings about her fame were. But yeah. now we know, thanks to this letter, sweet vindication <laughs> that Harper Lee, like 30 years ago, said that she <laughs> did not want this to happen. Uh, and to, I find that. I don't know, Jen. I find it validating, but now I'm really yeah. mad on her. I mean, behalf. this is an actual get off my lawn situation, which I like. She's very cranky, right. and I don't blame her, uh, especially if she's not being compensated. <laughs> if you're gonna, you know, get tourists and make attractions all based on the works of a resident, you should probably, at the very least, compensate them for their creative labors, if not get their permission first, which clearly she would not have given. It is. It is, yeah. I mean, I feel like Harper Lee, it feels like every story about her and her estate tends to be people doing things that she would not have appreciated or approved of. And it's a bummer, Mm -hmm. to say the least. It is a bummer that the estate seems now concerned with making money for the estate um, and not so concerned with what Harper Lee's wishes for her legacy would have been. Yeah, it's too bad. And now we like we can see it in her yep. own handwriting. So I don't know. I'm glad that it has. Yeah, at the very out, least, there's I now suppose. a thing to point to and say, yeah, this is not in the spirit. Right. Yeah. And that I think can change if you were thinking about going to Monroeville to be a Harper Lee tourist. Like, well, now you know how Harper Lee would have felt about it. So you can factor that into your math. On the other side, and in a pretty like delightful and surprising story from from last week, Nora Roberts basically like owns a Mm -hmm. whole town in Maryland. Mm It's called Boonesboro. It has a population of about three and a half thousand people. Um, She has lived near the town for quite a while or in the town and it's the town was struggling when she moved there 
Her husband owns the bookstore there. It's called Turn the Page. Um, it's been a fixture in the town for a couple of decades. The bookstore itself is a shrine to Nora Roberts. And then there are a bunch of other local businesses that are tied in to Nora Roberts or that she or members of her family own. She's invested like $3 million in the area, which in the like in the size of the Nora Roberts fortune, like Nora Roberts is definitely Scrooge McDucking on a pile of money. $3 million is a lot of money, but it's not a lot of Nora Roberts money. So like she's invested. Well, point of order, right? Just to, sorry. <laughs> so they own upwards of $3 million in property, but she's also poured property. millions into okay. the town. There's a foundation that has Got supported it. the town in various other ways. Okay. So, so yeah, I think I, there, this is a very long piece for the record. Uh, this is, it's a, a deep dive into Boonesboro and Nora Roberts, which is super interesting. I don't recall seeing, a, mm-hmm. and it's from Jezebel, which is interesting. Like, I don't know that I've ever read a deep dive yeah, on Jezebel before, but this is very interesting and well done. And, uh, and I, I found, I was looking through it and it looks like uh, from its founding to the end of the 2015 fiscal year, the foundation that they've set up has given out roughly 17 million in grants. Much of it spent locally. Yeah, Ooh, so there's a she's, right. there's a lot like donated to hospitals and the elementary school yes. and hiking hiking and nature programs. Rebecca Nora Roberts has probably <laughs> also hugged a tree or at least wants people to hug them on her behalf, which is fine by me. Um, you know, she helped with a nearby fire station, a library. So 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 yeah. Yeah, she has actually done more than just own property, but also, yeah, she, they literally, like, they sell Nora perfume and all of this yeah. merchandise created around characters and, you know, plot points from her books. And I know authors who have done romance events in Boonesboro, and they said it is a trip. Oh, really? Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. It's, you know, it's only a few hours from Richmond. Oh, field trip, like- Rebecca. <laughs> I need to go. Yeah. So across the street from the bookstore is the Inn Boonesboro, which is an eight-room bed and breakfast that Nora Roberts opened in 2009. And one of the super fans that the reporter for this piece interviewed has stayed there 23 times to the tune of up to $315 a night. Yeah, perhaps I, I need to go. more revealing, I think, in this piece than like that Nora Roberts has a lot of money, which no surprise is there. <laughs> like, yes, she definitely has a lot of money, uh, is how her fans feel about her and how dedicated yeah. and willing they are to come and shell out for merchandise and stays in the B&B mm-hmm. and all of that stuff. I mean, it is, she is Lenora and you can see in this piece, like how strongly her fans feel about her. Yeah, you don't get the stories about like Nora Roberts fandom, I think for a couple of reasons, one being that like her audience tends to be older women and our culture is really good at dismissing the things that women, but especially older women are interested in. She writes romance and like paranormal stories and book culture is also really good at dismissing those, even though she sells so many of them that she has a Scrooge McDuck pile of money, but that she has this like wonderful relationship with her readers and has used it to support this town. And like, I wasn't trying to say $3 million is not a lot of investment. Like that's a lot of money, Mm. period. Um, And that she's done that and then some into like the town and the surrounding areas and that it really seems to feed itself. But I also thought that it's very remarkable that we didn't, that this has been going on for decades and we're just now hearing about it. Like there are um, other figures in the literary world and not to knock the choice to do it, but who like 
trumpet their philanthropy Mm. very loudly um that like they do the philanthropy and it's good philanthropy that they're doing but they're also it's also a pr machine of like look at these good things that i'm doing with my money Um, but nora roberts has like saved a town like she has revitalized a town over the last couple of decades and is like yes she is also benefiting from it because she owns a lot of the town and the places where people spend money but the people in this piece seem to feel positively about it they don't seem to feel exploited and that's notable but also notable that like she's just been kind of quietly doing this and not making a thing of it Um, yeah if you're plugged into the romance community i think people do know about this especially in light that turn the Mm -hmm. page okay you know like is i'm sure the location that everybody orders their signed copies from and things like that uh and i think you know like i have heard in romance circles like oh yeah nora Roberts, she owns a town like mbt um but again this is just another what you talked touched on earlier this is just another way in which we don't talk in largely public spaces about things that women care about i.e romance like it's this is not going to get covered Mm -hmm. because she's nora roberts and she writes primarily romance and you know people don't cover that very often if they're not a niche site if it's not a dedicated site so yeah it's cool to see it hit something as big mm-hmm. as Jessica. And it is. It is, a, it is a really intense and interesting story. It's fascinating. Yeah, there, if it's you keep long... going in this piece, I mean, I did not have enough time to read it every sentence, but I was skimming. And there's a bunch of stuff in here about some issues that the town has had in terms of their government rollover since the Trump election. And, you know, some mm. some warring factions, perhaps, and, you know, attempts to cut certain kinds of projects and things like that. And there's a great quote from Nora about some of that in there. So it's worth I actually think it's worth mm. reading all the way to the end. It's very interesting because it. I was just going to say it's very interesting because it's also a slice of life. Look at what small town politics are like, Mm. especially in a place where part of the industry is bent on attracting tourists to spend money in this specific way. There's also information yes, about her Celtic yes. tattoo. Nora has tattoos. I don't, I don't know that I knew that, but she does, including a new Celtic tattoo that she got at a local tattoo parlor. I love it. I love it, too. Mm-hmm. I want more mm-hmm. of this, please. May Nora Roberts' yeah. efforts. I mean, succeed. she doesn't need our help because she's Nora Roberts. <laughs> she does not need our blessing, but we're giving it to her. Anyway. She mostly does seem like a person who uses her powers for good. I don't know enough to know for sure, but in this case, certainly. She yeah. seems like she would uh, be Yes, fun. yes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> All right. Well, to round us out this week on people whose efforts we definitely want to see succeed, our heroes of the week are two women named Patty Rodriguez and Ariana Stein. They were looking for bilingual children's books, um, particularly in Spanish and English, back in 2014, and they couldn't find many of them at all. Um, So they founded a company called Lil Libros, Lil like Little, also like Lil Sebastian, (laughs) that um, now has 14 titles that were all written by them, and it has brought in a million dollars in sales in 2018. So presumably they're cooking along in 2019 as well. Um, proving that there, I mean, we already knew, we know that there is a market for these books that is underserved. Bilingual books and Spanish language books available in the US is really underserved. Those readers are very underserved by publishing. And they also tell a story in this piece from the LA Times about 
pitching this idea like to agents and to publishers and being told like, oh, we just really don't think that that's an, a market for us or that that's an audience that's going to buy books. So they went and they wrote these books and they have published them themselves to the tune of making a million dollars. And that's amazing. Good for them. Yeah. This is super awesome. Yeah. It's wonderful. And and, and very frustrating that they had to right. do it themselves. Like, this yeah. is ridiculous. Uh, but they have a deal with Target. Mm-hmm. Um, and their books have also been featured at the Metropolitan Museum of Art and the Museum of Modern Art in New York, which is super cool. And it's now good enough for a full-time job uh, for one of them. And they have like invest, they're looking mm-hmm. for investors, um, which I hope they find. Yes. Uh, yeah, it's there's a bilingual board game, which I might have to get for my niece. Oh, I yeah. had not actually heard of this company before, which is frustrating because, you know, especially working in the indie bookstore scene, like we were always trying to find good bilingual children's books because mm-hmm. we definitely had demand. And I hope that if you're an indie bookseller and you're listening to this show, you will see if you can order titles for these because they look great. And they're definitely people are looking for these in your stores. Absolutely. Yeah, they look really cute. There's one about Frida Kahlo that's right here, sort of front and center, all kinds of like variety among the 14 titles that they've done so far. And their aim is to offer um, books for older kids as well. They want to be able to grow with the child. Um, and they've been featured on like social media from celebrities and all kinds of – it seems like they're starting to really build some momentum. So hopefully we can contribute to that a little bit here, um, buy their books, help them keep going. So congratulations mm-hmm. to the founders of Lil Libros. All right, Jen. I can't believe we got through all of that. I know. I'm very impressed with us. In 49 <laughs> minutes. Is, is it some kind of record? <laughs> Let's call it one. Okay. <laughs> you can find links to all of our sponsors and links to all of the shows that we discussed in or all the shows, all the stories that we've discussed in the show notes at bookriot.com slash listen. If you like the show, maybe you just want to tell us that you too support Hugging Trees. You can rate or review it on Apple Podcasts. And we'll be back next week.